this is Dr. Adrian Lepristi. Join me for Bioceuticals Clinical Mastery, the triad of sleep, stress and immune dysfunction on July 13, where I'll lead you through the various psychological, biological, lifestyle and environmental causes of sleep disturbances. I will also showcase the assessment tools that practitioners can use to identify poor sleep, as well as the evidence-based treatment options that I use every day for stressed, anxious and sleepless patients. Go to bioceuticals.com.au to reserve your place today. And welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based, integrative, functional and complementary medicine. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording today. I would also like to pay my respects to Elders past and present. With us today is Professor John Wardle, who is Director of the National Centre for Naturopathic Medicine at Southern Cross University. In addition to clinical qualifications in nursing and naturopathic medicine, John has postgraduate qualifications in public health, law and health economics. With more than 200 academic publications to his name, John is a highly accomplished researcher. Today we're going to discuss his research into endometriosis. Welcome to FX Medicine, John. Thank you so much for being with us today. I know that you have a passion for endometriosis and it was actually the focus of your clinical practice. I do. Thanks Thanks for having me, Emma. Um, yeah, no, it, it, was, it was certainly, you know, pretty much what most of my practice was built around um, in Brisbane. Uh, and, and funnily enough, it, um, it came in many ways because of my experience as a nurse. So. Mm. I, I went into to naturopathy thinking that I would work in, in, in one certain area and just all these stories of my colleagues, in the, uh, you know, which is, it is a female-dominated industry nursing. Mm. Um, I was one of the female nurses and every time they'd hear that I was studying naturopathy, I'd be continually asked by friends and colleagues, you know, is there anything you can do for endometriosis? Been to this, this practitioner, this practitioner, no one can do anything, no one believes me. Mm. You know, it just really highlighted just, I guess, how, how hidden this condition is for many women, how, how much it's significantly impacting their lives mm. and, you know, just the immense uh, need that was actually out there to work on. And, and as I practiced more and more, it was just it is a very rewarding practice to be in because mm-hmm. it is something that, that women do experience a lot, uh, you know, 10% of Australian women uh, potentially, um, probably more because it is quite a difficult thing to diagnose. And, you know, you can make such a difference in, in people's lives by, by treating this condition that still to this day, um, you know, women still go into a general practice clinic mm. and can be told they're just making it up. And it's not, not all general practitioners, I should say. Some, some yeah. are very, very good. But, you know, it's 2022 and it's, it should be a lot better than it is now. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And endometriosis has been described as the largest women's health crisis of our time. And the need for significant research into endometriosis in the workplace has been highlighted with recent data showing that women with endometriosis, they don't feel fully supported in the workplace and they, on average, need to take four sick days per month to manage their symptoms. And these are often unpaid. And that puts an extra financial burden on women who are already living with an expensive disease. Now, the Endo at Work project, it's, it's a joint project between Endometriosis Australia and leading academics, including yourself, John. And the purpose is to examine the impact of endometriosis on an individual's career and how workplace changes 
may influence the management of endometriosis. So can you give us an overview of how this research is actually being conducted, the timeframes involved and the different stages? Can you walk us through if you can? Yeah, sure. So basically, you know, what we're hoping to do is to you know, make workplaces a little bit more endometriosis friendly, make employers a little bit more endometriosis friendly mm. and actually make, you know, find out how we can use the workplace itself as a tool for for making, you know, life easier for women with, men, with, with endometriosis. And, you know, as you said, it's a very expensive disease. Mm. Some of this might be employer management. You know, a lot of women reported not just being passed over for promotion or, or, or actually being fired for their endometriosis, you know, taking what was viewed as excessive leave or whatnot for, you know, what is a very <laughs> valid reason for leave. Yeah. Um, you know, one in six women, I think, actually reported they lost their jobs and about one in three, you know, reported being passed over for promotion. That's huge. Um, mm. This can happen for, you know, any number of reasons. Flare-ups aren't predictable. They happen when they happen. That might require having to leave a face-to-face meeting at any time. It means that, you know, a lot of women felt excluded from social and networking opportunities that were actually intrinsic to establish themselves in the office. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, just the stigma uh, of endometriosis. As a privileged white male, if I, if I say I've got a migraine and I have to excuse myself from the meeting, that's well accepted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, women who reported saying that they had a flare-up or, you know, often they didn't even feel confident or comfortable to discuss. Mm. But there's still a stigma around women's health in its impact on the workplace. So this project, uh, and it's actually a series of a number of projects. So okay. we're, we're doing everything from, you know, surveys of women to identify exactly, you know, what is working, what isn't working, you know, how we can make that better. We're talking to employers. Um, we're working with the UK Endometriosis Association, sorry, Endometriosis UK, who have initiated an endometriosis employer-friendly scheme Okay. to basically identify how this place where women spend, you know, nearly a third of their lives, yeah. um, a, a place where there is a lot of potential to actually make life easier. We saw with this natural experiment of COVID, yeah. um, working from home actually improves symptom management in a lot of women. And that's just simply because they had access to, to health aids you mm-hmm. know, during meetings. They could actually take time out and come back to a task. They actually had more flexible hours. Mm-hmm. Not, not every woman, it should be said that, you know, obviously there are some types of jobs, office work, for example, that are more conducive to this. And, yeah. and we do need to work with, with other employers. And the construction industry is actually one that's doing quite well with this. Oh, um, they're, they're looking at an extension of their campaign around menstruation to, inc- you know, to include endometriosis management. But there's a lot of things that we can actually do to make working life more flexible and particularly more flexible mm. for, for women with endometriosis. Because if we don't, we lose 10% of the female workforce, which is extraordinarily valuable and important resource that, you know, Australian mm. society needs to actually be working uh, to their full potential. Yeah. And, you know, you can't underestimate what this research is going to bring to light and how this ripple effect can flow through workplaces and have this much needed uh, improvement for women. And it's such a taboo topic in many workplaces as well. That That's what I hear from my patients suffering from endometriosis is that people feel almost afraid or nervous to bring it up. Uh, And there is that stigma that you mentioned. And we really just got to blow that out of the water. And I'm hoping that this research really helps to do that. Yeah. And it's really about making more employers actually knowledgeable about what they can actually achieve from this. Because our our research initially showed that, you know, 60% of women found that even the small amount of flexibility that COVID created actually made them more productive. So, 
increasing the option of women with endometriosis to be able to live up to their full potential. Mm. It benefits everyone. It benefits employers. It obviously benefits the women with endometriosis themselves and it benefits society as a whole. Yeah, it's a win-win-win all around, absolutely. And, you know, this project, it's government-funded. Was it difficult to secure that funding? Uh, yeah, it's always difficult to secure funding um, from, from yeah. anyone, not just government. But, you know, the thing that actually made this happen, well, obviously, you know, just the incredible work of people like Mark Armour at Western Sydney mm. Uni, um, you know, people like Alex at um, Endometriosis Australia and Donald Chichia and, you know, a whole host of just incredible people um, continually advocating for this. Yeah. But ultimately, the government funding came from the place that most government funding comes from, and that's the narrative and the stories and the power of human interest and stories that surround that. So, mm. you know, we were fortunate that there were some, you know, wonderful women working in the backbench and the Senate actually, you know, advocating for this. Some of right. them who were endo warriors, some who were not. Obviously, you know, the Prime Minister's wife was quite influential in some of these discussions as well. Mm-hmm. But it's slowly sinking, you know, into the community, the powerful stories of, you know, everyday impacts of this condition for women and how, you know, how most women are actually being ignored in their health needs. So really that's that's where the National Action Plan for Endometriosis came from because we've known this has been an underserved condition for a long time. And, you know, I just really want to acknowledge the work that, you know, particularly Endometriosis Australia have done on, on really highlighting, you know, how important this work is to do and how important it is to pay more attention to this condition. Even some small changes from what we've seen can have actually quite a drastic effect. Yeah, agreed. And, you know, that National Action Plan was launched in in 2018 and they had $22 million worth of funding put towards that, which is incredible. And the overall goal was, you know, a tangible improvement in the quality of life for individuals living with endometriosis, including a reduction in the impact and burden of disease at individual and population levels. And, you know, one of the pillars is research. Are there any particular areas of research that you would love to see explored under this action plan? Well, this workplace project is a really good example. I think there's Mm. a really great potential in empowering women to actually manage their condition, uh, you know, manage their endometriosis symptoms better. We were asking people to you know, we're asking square pegs to fit into round holes. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to, you know, make that hole that they need to fit in a little bit more square, a little bit, you know, similarly shaped because, you know, we, you know, life doesn't go away. Yeah. Um, and But there's all sorts of things we can actually do to make life easier for women, not just with endometriosis, but with any condition. And we don't really do that as well as we could um, in Australia. So mm, agreed. lifestyle interventions, workplace interventions, creating, you know, environments that are actually conducive to not just good health, but actually, you know, empowering environments that actually enable you to manage um, whatever symptoms you have and and, and building that flexibility. You know, this is a non-pharmacological approach. (laughs) It's it's almost naturopathic by definition. Yeah, yes. And I think, you know, sometimes naturopaths, we tend to focus on the power of what happens over the desk with a one-on-one intervention with a patient. But but actually, you know, that holistic notion of actually building health-producing environments, I think, is something that I think neither the research community or, to be honest, many of the naturopathic community have actually paid as much attention as they should on. Yeah, it's a really interesting area. And, you know, anything we can do to make this an easier process is going to be a great thing. And you mentioned before about how COVID has changed things. And during some research for this episode, I came across this 2019 information sheet from Safe Work Australia, and it was detailing, you know, endometriosis and encouraging employers to consider consider flexible work arrangements and and job modifications. And, you know, it might have been a recommendation, but up until COVID happened, data is pretty clear that endometriosis 
uh, sufferers didn't always have the flexibility that they needed. And, and one thing I've seen time and time again in clinical practice throughout COVID is how well it has suited uh, these women. It, it's been just incredible. Can you expand on this a little bit more? You're right. This is something that's been recommended for a long, long time. Mm. COVID, I guess, snapped us all out of reality a bit and actually created a natural experiment. And, and you know, COVID, you know, obviously was a challenging time for all of us, but we really took this opportunity to actually highlight, you know, this was the first time that people were being, you know, essentially forced to work from home. You know, yeah. employers didn't really have a choice on whether they could or not. Women were actually uh, working from home, as were men, in many jobs. And it's one of the few examples where basically the world provides you a natural experiment to test the hypothesis. The results themselves, we knew it was probably going to be helpful, but the results were actually quite surprising to us. You know, we were gobsmacked, to be honest, at how much this had actually improved the lives of women with endometriosis. So, you know, nearly 80% of women said it made management of their symptoms easier. You know, Mm. nearly two-thirds said, you know, they were more productive. I think I think it was like ninety percent of women actually thought that flexibility in in working arrangements was actually going to improve management of endometriosis in the workplace if there was actually a a more formal way of doing that. So mm. you know it, it's one of those things. Sometimes you can say to your blue in the face that this is going to be helpful, this is going to be helpful, but mm. um, but actually having this experience and having that data and actually being able to show to you know to people actually it it, it helped women and it helped. The bottom line, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of advantages here as well. So, so you know, through the end of a work project, that's the extension of what we're doing now, um, is to actually develop those recommendations for employers. Mm, um, because it's, you know, I think working from home was always seen as a cost for employers or it was going to result in lower productivity, right? People thought they were going to be, you know, watching Netflix and, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. eating tubs of ice cream and that was all they were going to be doing mm. uh, while they are at work. But, you know, this was actually uh, one of the few silver linings of, of the last two years was, you know, we've had a radically different view of workplace flexibility and what workplaces were doing that was good and what workplaces were doing that was bad. And I think there's a, a lot we can actually learn from that. Yeah, and I think it's incredible. So that paper is called Endometriosis in the Workplace, Lessons from Australia's Response to COVID-19, and we'll link to that in the show notes for people that want to go on and read that in detail. But in our previous podcast that I did in this series on endometriosis with our endo warrior, Natasha, she explained to us the extensive nature of endometriosis and its high financial costs. And statistics show that endometriosis costs women an average of $30,000 a year. So the ability to work really matters matters to these women and anything that can be done to make this uh, an improved situation is, is so critical. And, you know, Natasha was saying it was so fascinating. She was saying, look, I was always the one that one person in a meeting that was on Zoom before COVID. And so I felt alone in that. And then in COVID, everybody was, you know, joined me on Zoom and then we were all kind of doing it together and she really helped them work out some working from home techniques and strategies that had been working for her because she was the expert on the matter. So I think that um, there's a lot to be learned in this space. Oh, completely. And look, some of the things that people found most useful were just so simple for any workplace to develop. So just things like being able to build the capacity for 20-minute rest periods. Mm. Um, People need to go away for 20 minutes. (laughs) <laughs> something as simple as, you know, having heat packs available and then mm, heat them in, in, in the office, which isn't um, always available. Like, these are really low cost and very easy things to implement that don't actually disrupt the workplace at all. 
and actually, you know, potentially make people's lives a lot easier and a lot more meaningful. So, and obviously, you know, there are additional interventions, but there's a whole spectrum of things that are actually incredibly easy to implement and actually, you know, more advanced things that might take a little bit more infrastructure to do, but can be very useful and, and, and have a real cost and clinical benefit. Mm, So there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that most workplaces could action and implement that could make some quick changes while these longer-term things are being rolled out. I mean, I love that positivity there. Now, I want to sort of swing a little bit to the driver's of the pathogenesis of endometriosis. And I was looking at one study that showed the occurrence was around 6.9% in first-degree relatives of women with the disease compared to a 1% rate in relatives of controls. And I found this really fascinating because as a naturopath, we know this is a multidimensional situation. There are many drivers, but that that stat to me was, was such a highlighting one that showed me, okay, don't ever forget the importance of the case-taking, of course. Mm-hmm. But what other drivers, like what are the drivers that you see and, and that you feel are involved? And, and I know there's many, but let's just delve into this a little. Yeah, look, <laughs> well, you know, you're, you're completely right. It's a multidimensional, you know, multifaceted condition for for sure. And actually, I, I remember having this conversation with people who were dubious about many naturopathic treatments or many complementary medicine treatments mm. because they, they'd say, oh, well, the trials say it doesn't work or yeah. <laughs> something like that. But when you're a naturopath, you do your case taking. You you know that some people, you know, your, your treatment might be related to microbiome. It might be related to the inflammatory component. It might be hormonal. It might be, you know, there, there are any, any things that can actually come into play with that treatment. And if mm. you're picking out just one and giving that same treatment to everyone with endometriosis, by its very definition, you, you, you've got to be successful in the minority of cases. So yeah. this is one of the things that, that I find so interesting about endometriosis is, mm-hmm. is it is so multidimensional. It is highly individualized. You know, yeah. Women are experiencing the same symptoms and the same manifestations in many cases, but the, the journey of how that developed can be quite different, radically mm-hmm. different for many, for many women. So I know the... Um, familial aspect as well you know (laughs) you know certainly there is a genetic aspect to endometriosis itself and it can be something that does form you know with a very high genetic component but all these risk factors themselves can actually you know they've got quite a a high relationship of sort of familial um, tendencies in things like how you know autoimmunity for example yeah um, you know we're seeing a lot of really interesting stories about the microbiome of your grandparents is very similar to the microbiome of yourself and Mm. there's certain things you have to do to actually negate the bad habits of your ancestors in some cases because that does actually get passed down generation to generation so I do think it is something that we need to look at, you know, a a lot more carefully. I think we need to look at it beyond just genetics because historically, you know, in these sorts of papers, it's been about the genetic pathogenesis. It's actually more related to those risk factors and those behaviours, you know, the (laughs) diet, Mm. you know, lifestyle behaviours that might have been three or four generations ago but are actually still impacting children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren down the track. Mm. So when you are doing your case taking, (laughs) you are right. No blood test or anything can actually replace the, you know, good case taking technique. But I think it is actually increasingly important to actually look not just at the individual themselves, but also, you know, the environment they've come from, the family they've come from, the risk that might have actually um, filtered down through the generations there as well. Yeah, that is such a good point. From that naturopathic perspective, you know, we're always blaming estrogen on things, but I think in this case, it's not the only thing at play. You know, the inflammation process, you know, interferons playing with that inflammatory pathways. And I mean, there's 
so many things at play here. And, and sometimes I think of as spiders web as a clinician. And if we just start to tug on one of the strands of the spider web, you know, mm. move towards an anti-inflammatory diet or encourage the sleep to hygiene to be better, we can start having an effect across the whole body system. But yeah, I, I think addressing the underlying drivers are always going to be key here. Oh, completely. We need to treat everyone with endometriosis with an open mind because you're right, historically, it's always been about the hormones and, mm. you know, the you know the hormones can be impacted by the HBO axis or the HPA axis. It can be influ- influenced by the microbiome. It can yeah. be influenced by just stress and anxiety more generally. It can be influenced by diet. There's all sorts yeah. of factors that can come into that. So every patient that comes through your door with endometriosis is a new patient and they might have endometriosis, but you can't assume that anything that they actually have influencing their endometriosis diagnosis is, is the same as the last patient with endometriosis you saw. And, and for me, as a clinician, that was actually you know, what I found e- even more rewarding about treatment was that these were people who would often go to a lot of other practitioners with, yeah. with you know, essentially shotgun or protocol type treatments for endometriosis, weren't getting success. And it wasn't just the detective work of, of trying to find out what was happening physiologically or um, sometimes not always physiologically, but you mm. know, sometimes sometimes psychologically or, you know, all these things are impacting. But it's often the first time that these women had actually had someone actually treating them and their condition as an individual, um, you know, rather than actually treating them as endometriosis. So it lends itself to naturopathic treatment so well for that. And it's something that naturopaths should be very, certainly make sure we don't let go um, Mm. down the route of, um, you know, evidence-based treatments. We certainly shouldn't be doing the protocol type treatments. but. You know, I remember when I was first practicing and and just even the concept that, you know, um, gut health could actually impact, you know, women with endometriosis. So, you know, giving giving them, you know, modifying the microbiome, which wasn't even called then. You know, I remember being laughed at and sort of castigated and, you know, all sorts of things by other practitioners and that. And now, you know, the research around microbiome and endometriosis is pretty standard now. Like it's a pretty standard thing to actually say that actually that is something you should look at when you are treating a woman with endometriosis. And that's something that you'll hear probably from a GP or a gynecologist. Yeah. And look, I think uh, this, controversy. Yeah, this aspect of whole body medicine is really growing and it's so great to see that philosophy moving out to other um, forms of healthcare. Um, but, you know, as a clinician, one of my dreams is to see an accurate blood marker for endometriosis to be discovered. And, you know, in clinic, we see this incredible suffering as women as they walk the years-long path to diagnosis. But laparoscopies, they can be invasive, they can be expensive. And, you know, a deep endometriosis ultrasound, it can be helpful, but it's more predictive of severe endometriosis, not the mild or moderate. And in the research for this episode, I came across a paper from April this year that looked at 20 nine studies on potential biomarkers, but unfortunately they concluded that none had reached diagnostic utility. And my feeling is that there's going to be a combination of biomarkers that might just one day become diagnostic, but I would love to know, I mean, do you have any insights on that front? Uh, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint you and say that, that, that they probably know a lot more than I do about this. You're completely right, Emma. It's Laparoscopies are very invasive and expensive and, you know, uh, ultrasounds, well, they are a lot better, but they're still not great. Yeah. Um, if for no other reason, then you actually have to go to a specified facility and that kind of stuff. One of the things that often doesn't get discussed about diagnosing endometriosis this mm. way is it just also allows people to dismiss women when they say they've got endometriosis from being believed. So a, a lot of women's complaints get dismissed because they 
might not be able to take the time out yeah. and have a have one of these things. They might, for pretty justifiable reasons, might not want to go. Any any operating theatre is not a pleasant environment that you'd sort of put your hand up and want to go to willingly. So, yeah. again, you've you mentioned research is just so important. And it's 2022 and we're still reliant on an invasive surgical technique to mm. actually fully diagnose women with um, endometriosis. And I think that speaks to the incorrect priorities and where we're placing our research dollars because yeah. you know, this, there are biomarkers for anything that ever happens to the prostate. Um, yes. <laughs> and, look, you know, that might be... Yeah, there might be physiological reasons for that, but a big part of that is actually because that's a male condition. Like if endometriosis affected men as much as it affected women, we'd definitely have biomarkers by now. Oh my I, goodness, I don't, don't, don't get me that. started, John. Like don't <laughs> get me started because I I cannot tell you how many times I've literally wrung my hands and said, you know, why do we not have this clinical information yet? You know, it's so frustrating mm. as a clinician to see and hear these stories. Um, yeah. But one of the keen areas of interest for me is the use of cannabis for endometriosis because, I mean, in clinic, many of my patients are using it for effective, really effective pain relief, but it would be just incredible to see some research in this space. And a 2021 paper by Justin Sinclair and Jerome Saris showed pain was the most common reason used cannabis. Now, we know this clinically, but it's great to see this backed up on in the research. But do you have any research coming up that involves cannabis? Because I'd be very interested. We have actually quite a lot of research in cannabis. Actually, we're running Australia's two largest clinical trials in cannabis um, through the centre right now. Um, none of them in endometriosis, I, I yeah. should say, although um, pelvic pain is one of the, the real key areas of benefit for cannabis. And, mm. you know, cannabis is something that, you know, can be a little bit overhyped sometimes. There's probably, you know, this large circle of stuff that claimed for benefit in and a smaller circle within that that it is actually useful. But one of the things that I find really fascinating about cannabis is that it doesn't treat all pain equally. Yeah. There are some forms of pain it just isn't effective in and it's, there are some forms of pain it's really effective in and the one that it seems to be really great for is pelvic pain. Mm, perfect. Um, and certainly there seems to be a real appetite to actually explore so, you know, we are having some conversations around that at the moment. We don't have right. anything going okay. in that at the moment. But, you know, we've got a project with cannabis and fibromyalgia, one of the other forms of pain that seems to be quite helpful for. Um, you know, we've been working with veterans and a few other things. Obviously, there's some work in cancer that um, Janet Schloss is working on. So we, we do have quite a big cannabis program. And I, I, I just can't wait to get these two programs working together. Yeah. <laughs> so I think there's just enormous potential there. We'll have to get you back on the show when the research comes out because that's going to be fantastic. Before when we were talking about that holistic nature of treatment, I know Deakin University is is currently recruiting for a trial to assess the effect of either yoga, cognitive behavioural therapy or education on quality of life with women with endometriosis and previous studies have definitely shown the benefits of yoga. I mean, what do you envision for the woman of the future as an ideal treatment for her endometriosis? Like, what do you see in 10 years' time for it to be available? Yeah, well, well, this goes back to that research priority that I was talking to you before, like mm. you know, em- empowering women to actually be leads, actually not just reliant on, on practitioners, but leads in their own journey to good health. So, yeah. so, you know, yoga is just a fantastic tool to do. One of the things that I actually use quite effectively in clinical practice, but has no research on it at all, <laughs> is hydrotherapy. And, you know, yeah. this is everyone has the equipment already in their house. Yeah. Um, you know, water is free, well, not not free, but <laughs> very, very low cost. Yeah. Um, and it's something that you can actually do by yourself without supervision. So we've reintroduced hydrotherapy into our naturopathic program because of that, because that is such a wonderfully accessible and effective non-pharmacological approach. But, yeah. you know, 
obviously education programs I think are really important. So you mm. know we've got some great students that are doing some fantastic work in the area of lifestyle medicine and, and group visits, which yeah. you know are primarily not just treatment programs but education programs. So you know I, I would really like to see more patient, not just centred but patient led. Yeah. Um, you know, I really think there's a real great role for naturopaths, not just as practitioners that sort of sit over the other side of the desk, but actually facilitators to help people through yeah. um, these lives. You know, yoga, I found it just the other day. I've, I've moved offices and I found my old yoga book from 1974 that I wow. used to photocopy and give to every patient I <laughs> <laughs> would do. But one of the things that I, I think will be really interesting, you mentioned yoga, mm. um, is that there are individualized forms of yoga and we've just developed an MOU with Svyasa uh, University, one of the largest yoga um, universities in India and, and mm-hmm. a couple of naturopathic and yoga hospitals over there. They're doing you know, wonderful programs, but they're doing individualized yoga for conditions, you know, yeah, condition amazing. specific, you know, yoga programs. And, and endometriosis is one of the ones that we're working with them on yeah. um, moving forward. So, we always talk about lifestyle medicine and that kind of stuff. And it can be a bit of a, I guess, dumping ground. <laughs> which mm. is dumb. So that it can be a bit victim blaming, you know, as well. So you can be, you know, we say, well, funny, you were living the right lifestyle and, and doing the right behaviours, you'd be better. There's a real opportunity to have a much more sophisticated and nuanced approach to how we help people help themselves with the management of their conditions um, and symptoms. so Yeah, and that, that um, collaborative care model that uh, mm. as clinicians that we need to always keep front of mind is, you know, who is the best person for me to refer to in, you know, the yoga space, in the, you know, sleep yeah. space, like whatever it is, we need to wrap these patients in a fantastic support network so that they have what they need at their fingertips rather than trying to struggle on their own. That's super important. But let's talk about one of my passions, which is, food as medicine in clinical practice. And I know the Centre for Integrative Nutrition at the Uni of California are currently recruiting for a three-month study on the effect of plant-based diet on endometriosis. Do you know of any current research in this space? Yeah, well, that pretty much it at the moment. Um, okay. is, is, you know, um, Gordon Sachs and this group at UC San Diego on that, which is a plant-based diet, but also also it's actually a Chinese medicine-oriented plant-based diet as well. So okay. there are a lot of TCM principles in that. I think there's enormous scope to doing that. We're, we're certainly developing, you know, what's called a culinary medicine component to our degree um, here. Oh, We've fantastic. got, you know, infrastructure that is going to be very much tool to do that sort of similar work. And the thing that always sticks with me about this whole food as medicine concept mm. is, um, I remember going to a, a research conference um, and seeing a colleague from the UK talking about how disappointed they were in their Chinese medicine trial because they had this Chinese medicine trial, they designed it perfectly mm-hmm. um, and, you know, it, it worked really, really well, but so did placebo. We asked them about placebo, we asked them what, what the placebo was and they said, oh, we designed it really well, we wanted to make sure, you know, the placebo was equally as disgusting to take, equally as smelly, equally... <laughs> um, <laughs> And, and when I asked them what it was, they said, oh, you know, we just put lots of garlic and sort of cabbage and oh, sort of Brussels no. sprouts. And <laughs> I said, well, that, no wonder it worked so well. It yeah. sounds remarkably like a, you know, naturopathic food as medicine treatment for someone with endometriosis. So mm-hmm. I, I think there's just so much that we can be doing in the food as medicine space because it is the medicine you take every day. And, you know, it might not be as powerful as pharmaceuticals, but it makes up in just being able to completely, you know, reoriented the body's physiology. It makes up for just its constant presence. So, you know, I I used to always relay to my students that if your patient walks away and you've made no other change, then for the rest of their life, they're just eating one more vegetable or, you know, know, uh, know, just a few more legumes or something like that, then you've actually made an extraordinary difference in their life. And, you know, we, we know from 
um, nutritional studies that these things can make a lot of difference to the symptoms uh, and symptom management of endometriosis. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I'd love to bring this back to food because a lot of them are lentils and microbiome or mm. you know, <laughs> the, mm. the sort of cruciferous foods rather than supplements or yeah. um, even simple things like just, you know, restoring this fatty acid balance can actually make a big difference in that inflammatory response as well. So I think there's, mm. there's just an enormous potential. Yeah. And, and, you know, we, we do have one student that sort of starting on this, but that's as part of a bigger group program. Okay. But, you know, it, it is one of the things that seems to be just working really, really well. Yeah, fantastic. And and look, I think for all the clinicians listening, you know, don't ever forget that food as medicine is your baseline. Don't go getting fancy <laughs> and throwing supplements and all sorts of other things if you have not covered that food as medicine baseline. I, I'm so passionate about that. Now, one of your PhD students is doing some, well, quite a lot of them are doing some good work, but the one that really, really fascinates me is the one by Sophia Gerontakis, who's doing a clinical trial to investigate how accessibility to naturopathic care can be improved. And her studies focused on examining the effectiveness of group-delivered naturopathic care. And I really feel this is groundbreaking research and can't wait for these outcomes to be published. And um, Dr. Michelle Woolhouse did an episode with James Masco on community-based care. And the early data from his work is really so incredibly positive. I can see this model working so well with endometriosis. So when when will these results be released? I'm, I'm very keen to hear them. Yeah, well, you know, you'd be very happy to hear that Sophia is very close to finishing data collection now. Great. So. Hopefully, hopefully very soon. But just the initial feedback has been fantastic. And it's everything you'd expect from a group intervention. So one of the key tenets of, you know, naturopathic medicine is this area, the the whole doctor is teacher phenomenon. And then group interventions are basically, they just take that principle and just run with it. So Mm. women are learning about themselves and about their conditions. They're not relying on the practitioner themselves to actually learn from. They're actually learning from each other. There's a lot of opportunities affording reflection uh, on their own experiences. Mm. For many people, it's probably one of the first times they've had the luxury, I guess, of sitting in that sort of supportive and facilitated environment to sort of walk through their own um, experiences. So Mm -hmm. group interventions, basically how they work, it's generally a a program of care, a six-week, 12-week, 24-week, depending on on the condition and and whatever you have, Mm -hmm. uh, of regular meetings, education sessions on things like food as medicine. Great. Um, you know, like mindfulness, you know, like self-care, those sorts of things. And then, you know, also the opportunity to have sort of individualized brief consultations if there is something more specific that the women want to talk to. So yeah. group medical interventions, what they've previously been called or shared medical appointments, I like to call them group visits because I think, you know, <laughs> naturopaths yeah. have a, a very unique um, and are very well poised to work in this kind of space. And I think it's Something that does make naturopathy more accessible to many people. Some people aren't Definitely. ready for that one-on-one consult. Yeah, and um, it's too expensive, John. For a lot of people, yeah. it's cost prohibitive. And I, and I love the that this is just so much more inclusive on so many levels. So I'm really looking forward to um, getting all the details from from that one. Now, my last question for you. Well, and, and one of the yeah. things, Emma, too, like that, that's really I think exciting about this. So I was just talking to someone. I won't name names, but a very large veterans clinic, which is actually using a similar approach for veteran care and pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, what they've been able to do through it being a program rather than a naturopathic visit, they've actually managed to get the major private health insurer to actually pay for naturopathic treatment. Incredible. Um, e- even in the light of the ban for this. So there's obviously our centre are, are very actively trying to sort of repeal that prohibition, which is, you know, yeah, it, great. It, it's a very unfair prohibition. But, but you know, this might also be a way that we can actually get 
that accessibility barrier overcome as well. Yeah, and I, I love all the advocacy work that you're doing at the centre. It's, it's much needed in our industry, so a big thank you. My last question in the last minute or two is, as a researcher, I know you're eternally curious and I would love to know if you could design a study without any barriers to resources, what would you want to research in this space? What question do you want answered? Well, ho- hopefully I'm working towards them. Okay, great. <laughs> um, Slowly, a little bit delayed. So, you know, as I told you, I, you know, I started working in clinical practice in this setting and, and went off into the research community and, and kind of had to let endometriosis not go, but, you know, didn't get to focus on as much as I wanted. And now I get to make a few more decisions. So I'm really yeah, trying great. to reorient back to my passion, which is this. But my passion always has been the same, you know, um, is that accessibility, that affordability getting the power of naturopathic treatments to those who need them the most. And sometimes mm. that's the really low intervention stuff that no one has an interest in funding. Yeah. Um, you know, hydrotherapy is one example we've chosen. You know, even food as medicine. You know, mm. No one makes money out of food as medicine projects at all. But what, one of my lecturers when I was studying, you know, yeah. you know <laughs> made the comment that, you know, the more years that they practice, the less and less products that they prescribed. Um, and, you know, the it. ones that they did prescribe were really targeted and very necessary. But when they first started, you know, they're just giving people everything. You know, people yeah. were rattling around out of their, out of their clinics. But um, I know. It's a, it is a big no-no. But I think <laughs> as you learn more, you realise how to practice in a way that's yeah. much more efficient for the patient as well. But, but really learning from those naturopathic principles. And, you know, we've got other PhD students like Rebecca Redmond as well, who's mm. doing great work going back through uh, not just the naturopathic archive, as it were, but, you know, hundreds yeah. of years of historical documents. Some of these things we shouldn't learn. Some are, you know, some of these, and they were always men. But there are some, you know, really interesting traditional approaches that, you know, were really useful. I, I know that one of my, one of the treatments that I used a lot in, in, mm-hmm. in my practice was pariah coccus, which is a Chinese medicine herb, which is used for damp heat usually. And mm-hmm. I found that quite effective in many women. But there's, there's not been a lot of that kind of... Um, you know, what can we learn yeah. <laughs> from traditions? And, you know, you know, can we take the best of, you know, um, you know, bits of Chinese medicine and incorporate them in naturopathic ways or bits of other, you know, naturopathic medicine and incorporate them in Ayurvedic treatments or, yeah. you, know, you know, yoga. So, so trying to, you know, I, I think as you said, you know, <laughs> that, that, that lifestyle, you know, building, you know, empowering women to actually have um, more control um, uh, in, 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 you know, producing good health themselves rather than sort of having to, to go back to a to a pharmacy or or, or a practitioner um, every yeah. every second week to yeah. to get their fix. So amazing, um, so much potential. Yeah, there is so much potential, which is is so exciting, and and I just can't wait to see this research path unfold for you. But thank you so much for joining us today, John. Like the key points, there's so many key points, but you know the future looks bright, ranging from better access to naturopathic care to blood-based biomarkers for a quicker diagnosis and, and more inclusive workplaces. You know, there is so much for us to look forward to in this space. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Don't forget, you can find all the show notes, transcripts and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website. I'm Emma Sutherland and thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.